When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. Hunter Biden was put on the board of Burisma, made a lot of money, got paid a lot of money over those years. You got the president bringing Hunter Biden around to state dinners. Millions of dollars of ill-gotten and undeclared income to Hunter Biden. Hunter's major tax offenses. Hunter brought Biden probe. Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden. The Republicans' Hunter Biden derangement syndrome on full display today as Attorney General Merrick Garland appeared before Jim Jordan's Judiciary Committee to defend the work of the DOJ. Also tonight, interesting developments in Georgia as DA Fonnie Willis names lawyer Lynn Wood, who worked to overturn Trump's election laws as a state witness. Ooh, these trials are going to be wild. Plus, a new book from author Michael Wolff reveals what was actually going on behind the cameras at Fox, how it enabled Donald Trump, even though Rupert Murdoch thought he was an idiot, and why Rupert Murdoch kicked Tucker Carlson to the curb. But we begin tonight with your tax dollars at work in Kevin McCarthy's Republican-led House of Representatives. We are staring down the barrel of a potential government shutdown that could paralyze our economy. And we're going on six months of zero military promotions, leaving our military paralyzed due to one Republican senator's obsession with controlling women's bodies. All of it due to Republican intransigence. Well, today, under the pretense of oversight, the House Judiciary Committee, led by the world's worst wrestling coach, Jim Jordan, grilled Attorney General Merrick Garland. And if for one moment you thought Republicans might take their oversight role seriously, Look no further than this insight into their vision of the most pressing issues facing Americans. There was a world naked bike ride in Madison, Wisconsin, just a couple months ago. And I sent you a letter two months ago asking if you had a problem with that. The world naked bike ride. The Republican display today was a peak for those of us on Earth One into the bizarro world of right-wing fever dreams on Earth Two that would only make sense to the most brain-addled Fox viewers with a heavy emphasis on one thing and one thing only. Doesn't it look weird that he's, making, he's become this immediate success in the art world as his dad is president of the United States? Isn't that odd? I'm not going to comment about any specific... Not going to comment, not going to investigate. I don't know when it happened. I don't know what happened because I'm not involved. But it happened under the previous administration. That's so logically fallacious. I'm sorry, I'm not following. It's one thing to have a gun charge in Delaware. That doesn't involve the President of the United States. But Burisma? Oh, my. I think I've tried to make clear that I don't know the specifics of the investigation. Much of what you are describing occurred... Uh, during the Trump administration, during a uh, Justice Department appointed by President Trump. No, it didn't. This is four and a half years of this investigation. We're talking about the last few years. Never mind the fact that Republicans went down that road after Attorney General Garland spelled out, like a high school civics teacher, exactly what his role is and how the Justice Department functions. 
I am not the president's lawyer. I will add, I am not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. Our job is to follow the facts and the law, and that is what we do. Now, despite reiterating the independence of the DOJ over and over and over again, Republicans threw out all manner of specious allegations, accusing the Justice Department of all sorts of malfeasance in the investigation into the president's son by a Trump-appointed prosecutor, no less. One Republican member even suggested that Garland be held in contempt of Congress, leaving Democratic members Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff to remind that it's another Justice Department special counsel investigation, Jack Smith's probe into Donald Trump's attempt to overthrow the 2020 election that committee chairman Jim Jordan is trying to whitewash. That is quite rich because the guy who's leaving the hearing room right now, Mr. Jordan, is about 500 days into evading his subpoena, about 500 days. So if we're going to talk about contempt of Congress, let's get real. The chairman would abuse the power of this committee by trying to interfere in the prosecutions of Donald Trump, by trying to use the committee's power of subpoena to compel criminal discovery, in effect, making the committee a kind of criminal defense firm for the former president. In fact, despite questioning Attorney General Garland for more than five hours, it was largely up to Democrats to do the committee's actual job and cut through Republicans' nonsense. It is just sad that this committee has also been transformed into a soapbox for political conspiracy theorists, instead of focusing on the really important issues that the American people care about. Does the rhetoric regarding the Biden case have any, any basis in reality? No, it does not. What we are doing here today is talking about a lot of conspiracy theories. I implore the public to see through the sham. I have no doubt that you will hear a deluge of conspiracy theories and baseless accusations. They will quote freely from so-called whistleblowers who have been broadly discredited or contradicted. All at the same time of a looming shutdown. The other side of the aisle cannot govern. And so they have this hearing, which was supposed to be oversight, and use it as a big distraction because they are failing to govern. Joining me now is the Congresswoman you just saw, Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania, who took part in today's hearing, and Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you both for being here. And Congresswoman, the other day I did a, a, a little rant um, uh, that I sat home and wrote just in watching Republicans on television and asking whether, isn't there any chance that Republicans are simply embarrassed? by what their, their representatives are doing. And I have to be honest with you today. The bits that I watched of this hearing today, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that this is our government. Uh, I'm embarrassed for Republicans, though they seem to have no capacity for being embarrassed for themselves. Um, and I just wonder how it felt for you to sit through this day of, I can't call it anything other than nonsense. Uh, I feel embarrassment for our committee, for the dignity of our work. I feel that embarrassment. And speaking to other moderate Republicans who are sadly too quiet, they are embarrassed for this. I'm on other committees. I'm on foreign affairs. There is a dignity uh, to our disagreement. You see in this committee, the Judiciary Committee, there is no dignity. There was no oversight. This is fecklessness and fealty to one former president. Uh, and I, I was thinking, you know, um, the attorney general was sworn in to tell the truth. I wish that the, all of us had been sworn in to tell the truth, because you saw the lie after lie after disinformation uh, on this committee. 
It is shameless, but they know no shame. Uh, you, you talked about the fact that if he had stayed in the room, the chairman of the, co- the committee, Jim Jordan. So this is someone who is in defiance of subpoenas himself. Yes. And yet is attempting to command people to honor the subpoenas that he wants to throw out about, I guess, I don't know, Hunter Biden's personal life, whatever it is that he wants. Did any Republicans remain to listen to their counterparts on the other side of the aisle? Because you talked to me before this started and saying you sat through the hearing. Did they? I sat through most of the hearing until I'm one of the later ones to speak and ask questions. And I wanted to be there because we do have a responsibility for oversight. We have a responsibility to the serious problems uh, this country faces. And so while I began by uh, saying, look, this is a sham. This is not oversight. This is actually them just politicking uh, and doing the bidding of a former president. The very same MO that he uses, which is to tear down Americans' confidence in the independent institutions. You saw Attorney General Merrick Garland with, with real pride talking about the rule of law, the 115,000 uh, members of his team in the Department of Justice who are trying to keep us safe all the while they are being threatened by this political rhetoric that is full of lies. Some of the Republicans stayed, but they mostly popped in and out. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the Democrats stayed, not in defense of the attorney general. He is independent. He's mm-hmm. doing his job. He's doing it with uh, allegiance to the Constitution and the rule of law. I think he did extremely well. I think they did extremely poorly, and the American people are witness. Uh, you know, and Andrew, you know, you worked in the Justice Department. I mean, the thing is, is that— I- Part of the reason Republicans are able to get away with so much of the shenanigans that they do is that a lot of Americans don't really understand necessarily how these institutions work. And so when Donald Trump talks about the the attorney general as if that is his lawyer, I thought it was really important for Merrick Garland to say, no, I'm not the president's lawyer, wouldn't be Trump's lawyer if he was president, and I'm not Biden's lawyer, and I'm also not you guys' lawyer. I'm not the Congress's hatchet man. Can you just talk about the civics of it? Because I don't necessarily think people understand the full role of the DOJ and the fact that, no, he personally is not prosecuting Donald Trump. That is that is the key difference to my mind as somebody who worked in the Justice Department under many different administrations between Donald Trump and everyone else. Um, And that includes Republican and Democratic presidents. Um, Jeff Sessions was essentially canned by Donald Trump because he understood that the Justice Department has to be independent. Now, the Justice Department's in an unusual position because, of course, it is a part of the executive branch. It is overseen by the president. But the norm that has to be followed if we are not to become an autocracy is that the Justice Department has to be independent, independent of Congress in terms of who gets charged. Doesn't mean there is an accountability and oversight. Um, it doesn't mean that the president and the White House don't get to talk about priorities. But who gets charged and who doesn't get charged has to be apolitical. And that is, I mean, whatever one can say about Merrick Garland, he, you know he understands that to mm-hmm. his core. Um, And that's what he was saying. Um, And, you know, just to repeat sort of what the congresswoman was saying is it was so important today for Congress to take on so many significant issues. There are issues about not enough federal defenders um, to represent um, people who are charged. There are issues involving our national security tools and how they should be reformed or not. That is a 
perfect issue for Congress to be taking up to do oversight. None of that was addressed. Instead, we're talking about the son of the president who has a drug addiction, who, by the way, has separate Trump-appointed counsel in charge of that case and is charged. Um, and so he will have his day in court. So that is just such a distraction from real business that Americans should care about. Well, right. I mean, the, the, this committee could have talked about police reform, um, could have talked about the federal role in protecting uh, voters and access to the ballot. Like, there is a lot of stuff that actually oversight would be really significant to have. And Democrats did try to do that. But I, I just want to play one interchange. And this is specifically about the Trump indictments, because this seems to be a bone that Republicans have to pick with Garland, even though, again, he's not the one who indicted Donald Trump, but were grand juries. Uh, here is the uh, interchange between uh, Congressman Adam Schiff and uh, A.G. Garland. Um, let's play that. Was the president telling the truth or was he lying when he said that President Biden told you to indict him? No one has told me uh, to indict. And in this case, the decision to indict was made by the special counsel. So that statement the president made on Sunday was false. I'm just going to say again that uh, no one has told me uh, who should be indicted uh, in, uh, in, in, in any matter like this. And uh, the decision about indictment was made by Mr. Smith. And one more to you again on this, Andrew, because, again, the special counsel, it's one of those things that those of us who are old enough to remember living through the Clinton era, uh, it feels like the person, you know, if they want to, can go far afield. But Jack Smith seems so by the book in the way that he's put these cases forward. And it seems so straightforward. I mean, the fact is Donald Trump did attempt to overturn the 2020 election. We had an entire January 6th hearing about it. What do you make of that interchange and uh, Mr. Garland's defense of the DOJ in that instance? Well, one thing that's notable, um, I think, both from the congresswoman and from the witness today, Merrick Garland, is a sense of propriety and what it means to take an oath of office and to be a public servant um, and what you owe the people who you are sworn to represent and who you're there for. You know, when I worked for the Department of Justice, it was keenly uh, understood that you're there because of the public and they pay your bills and you know and your salary. And you know, you saw Merrick Garland there very in a very dignified way, trying to give a completely honest but apolitical answer and to stay out of the news and not to be calling anyone a liar or not. Um, his what you know the import was clear, but he was trying to stay in his lane, um, as he should. And, you know, there were people like the Congresswoman today who acquitted themselves, I thought, very, very well now as a private citizen, um, understanding, um, even in this sort of political season that we're in, that there still is, as you said, Joy, so many real issues confronting the country. And it's a shame that people aren't um, willing to spend the time and energy focusing on them.
Yeah, indeed. Let me really quickly read a White House statement. Extreme House Republicans are running a not-so-sophisticated distraction campaign to try to cover up their own actions. They're hurting America to a dangerous and costly with a costly government shutdown. Don't be fooled. They want to distract from the reality that their own chaos and inability to govern is going to shut down the government in a matter of days, hurting our economy and national security and jeopardizing everything from troop pay to fighting fentanyl. These sideshows won't spare House Republicans from bearing responsibility for inflicting serious damage. I'm going to give you the last word on this Congresswoman, because while that circus is happening, we are on the verge of a government shutdown. Behind the scenes, are there is a plan B in the works involving Democrats and uh, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries potentially leading a path forward to do the actual work of government? Well, I know we're doing our part. The Democratic Caucus is doing our part. But this is on Mr. McCarthy. Mr. McCarthy has had the majority all these months, we have been here ready to do the work. We have serious problems to deal with. That's why in my conversation with the attorney general, I wanted to talk about fentanyl. I have a son in recovery. I have too many friends who have lost children to fentanyl poisoning and overdose. Uh, that's the serious work we need to be doing. Uh, why we did this oversight hearing, which was not an oversight hearing this week, I have no idea. Why next week they're going to open their first hearing in oversight on the faux impeachment of President Biden with fact-free nothing? I have no idea. It shows you the utter dysfunction, and I think malpractice on the side, that's the nicest word I can use, on the side of Republicans. We owe it to fund our government, at a minimum, to fund the folks who work in the Department of Justice who are trying to keep us safe from fentanyl, from terrorism, from violence in communities. How about our troops? We owe it to our troops. They're training. Uh, they are fighting. They are working. Uh, and it could be that in a matter of days, they will be doing all of that without any pay. Extraordinary disrespect. Extraordinary lack of understanding of your oath of office and what we were sent here to do. Yeah, indeed. And my answer as to why they're doing it is they're, perform they're performing for Fox. They want to get clips on Fox, and then they, they leave, they leave the, the chamber. That's what they're doing, in my opinion. Uh, Congresswoman Madeline Dean, thank you uh, for the work that you tried to do today uh, and the Democrats tried to do today. But, woo, what a day. Uh, Andrew Weissman, our friend, thank you very much. Up next on The Readout. It's a, in a strange turn of events, a far-right conspiracy theorist becomes a witness for the prosecution in the Fulton County case against Trump and his co-defendants. Hmm. Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
We all know that Donald Trump did not work alone in his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Many of those who aided in Trump's efforts have either been named as his co-defendants or identified as co-conspirators. But there are some names that we have not seen, names that you might have expected to be prominent in all of this, like Roger Stone, Mike Flynn, and Steve Bannon. They're all part of the story, but don't seem to appear in the indictments. And then there's Lynn Wood, the prominent right-wing attorney, election denier, and pro-Trump fanatic who was all over the place defending Trump in the months following the 2020 election. Wood even told CNBC that shortly after the 2020 election, he hosted a who's who of conspiracy theorists at his plantation in South Carolina. Yes, I did say plantation including Kraken lady Sidney Powell, Mike Flynn, Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne, and Cyber Ninja's CEO Doug Logan to coordinate their efforts. And while Wood was never formally part of Trump's campaign legal team, he did file a series of meritless lawsuits on Trump's behalf and had his name attached to at least one legal case in Michigan alongside one of Trump's actual lawyers, the aforementioned Sidney Powell. That case resulted in a federal judge sanctioning them for what he called their historic and profound abuse of the judicial process, calling the lawsuit, quote, frivolous. Well, now we may have discovered why we haven't heard Lynn Wood's name in the indictments. In a filing today from Fulton County District Attorney Bonnie Willis regarding conflicts of interest among some of the defense lawyers for the 19 defendants in her RICO case, she revealed that Wood is now a witness for the state. Wood tells the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that while he has been told he will be subpoenaed by the prosecution, he has not flipped on Trump and claims he wouldn't have any knowledge with which to flip on him anyway. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee and a former member of the House Judiciary January 6th Select Committee. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for being here. Uh, well, I, I'm sure your ears perked up as mine did when we heard that Lynn Wood would be a witness for the prosecution. Um, I just want to ask you what you make of it, because he was he, he's been sort of kind of a, a shadow figure, but that hasn't been a central figure that we've heard of in this case. Well, you know, one day there will be a legal ethics or professional responsibility course designed just around the lawyers who were involved in the Trump insurrection in an attempt to overthrow the presidential election, because there were so many rules of professional responsibility that were violated in addition to the underlying law itself. Um, it does not surprise me that some of them may be turning states evidence and um, trying to speak as if they were mere legal advisors and were not participants, which is probably, um, you know, the, the best life preserver they're going to try to grab onto here. I'm going to put up on the screen uh, some of the list of some of the people. And there are 21 people who the grand jury recommended indicting um, in Georgia in this uh, RICO case. Among them, Senator Lindsey Graham, Mike Flynn, Kelly Leffler, the former senator, Boris Epstein, one of Trump's lawyers and advisors, David Perdue, also a former senator, uh, Cleta Mitchell, the uh, right wing lawyer who's we know was part of hatching all these plots. And there's Lynn Wood. Linwood is in that list, too. And I wonder, as a part of the January 6th committee, did you all ever consider subpoenaing, you know, Linwood? Was he someone that you all thought about bringing into the narrative of the January 6th conspiracy, given that he hosted, you know, what he called a who's who of these conspiracists and election deniers at his plantation? I don't remember specifically whether Linwood was someone within, you know, the scope of 
the investigation at this point. And I'm actually uh, I continue to be amazed at how many new substantial players have been discovered who I'd never even heard of before. You know, and we spent you know more than a year on this, obviously. And, and there is that aspect of it, as you said. And then these indictments, each one is sort of pulling new threads, to your point, of people we hadn't been introduced to, characters we hadn't, including these fake electors, who some of them now in, in, have been indicted um, as part of the conspiracy, particularly in the RICO case um, in, uh, in, in Georgia. What do you make of, uh, just as a constitutional expert, I love, I love getting nerdy with you and talking constitutional stuff, the idea that some of these people are now trying to make the same claim that Jeffrey Clark the former DOJ official made, that Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, made without success to say that we, our cases should be federal, that you can't do a state RICO indictment against us because we are somehow federal. What do you make of that argument? Well, in order to make that very difficult uh, proof, you've got to show that you were a federal officer working on fulfilling a federal mission, essentially doing your federal job at the time. And that's not at all what presidential electors are. Presidential electors are appointed by the state legislature through the election laws and through the election process, which incidentally is something that the Republican Party has been emphatically insisting upon with the so-called independent state legislature doctrine, which was basically rejected by the Supreme Court in a recent decision. But they're, they, above all, have been insisting that these people are state actors and not federal actors. Just because you're a state actor who has a federal function of casting an elector doesn't make you a federal employee or a federal officer. Uh, that's ridiculous. It's not like presidential electors have an office in Washington or a department or even uh, meet other than when they meet in the state capitol to cast their uh, their votes. And at that point, the governor certifies the electoral college and sends it to Washington. These people really were fake electors. They had not been certified by the official Georgia state election process. So they were, even if they were real electors, they wouldn't be federal, but they were fake electors. Um, and so they were fake state officials um, impersonating uh, state officials in a way to try to strip the public of our right to elect our own president through the process we've got. It does feel in some ways like one of the things that these MAGA Republicans do is they take advantage, we were talking about this in the previous segment a little bit, of people sort of not really understanding how the system works, to say things like, well, the vice president can decide who the president is, right? The vice president can make that call on the in the well of the Senate, which is not true. Or that electors can, you can have different ones from the ones who were chosen. Do you, do you feel like in some sense it is a civics problem, that Americans really, because the system seems so vague to so many people, that Republicans are just introducing these kind of lies into the system that are very difficult to extract. Well, you've got it. I mean, it's definitely a civics problem if we're going to maintain a completely archaic and antiquated and obsolete system like the Electoral College. It is the system, and so we have to um, be faithful to it in implementing it. Uh, some of the right-wing supporters of the insurrection are saying, oh, it's all a problem with the Electoral College. No, we've got to enforce the Electoral College as long as it's the law. But it would be good if we adopted the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact Agreement, which has been adopted by 15 states now in the District of Columbia. Of course, the Republicans are opposing that. And that is right. a method to try to get us 
to a national popular vote. I mean, it just makes no sense that in the 21st century, we're not electing the president the way we elect governors, senators, mayors, council people, and everybody else. Whoever gets the most votes wins. Yeah. And that's easy to understand. And it doesn't have all these nooks and crannies that can be exploited by a strategic bad faith actor like Donald Trump and yeah. in an attempt to foment chaos in the system. Ah, oh, but Congressman, Republicans can't win the presidency with the popular vote. So, you know, they're never going to go with that, um, at least in the modern era. They've not done so in seven out of what, six out of seven times. I, I do have to ask you this with apologies, because you're such a dignified individual. But I do have to ask you about this because she was, I would say, the star witness in the January 6th hearings. Cassidy Hutchinson does have a book out. She's made a lot of allegations. We know that there was a lot of intimidation that she faced. We know that she had to be pretty brave to go against Donald Trump's lawyers and what they were telling her to do to lie. She's now also made an allegation. Uh, that one of Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia Rico case um, attempted to sexually molest her, uh, made advances toward her, lewd advances, and that would be one Rudy Giuliani. And I want to see if you have any comment about her allegations that essentially back, I guess, in the, ellip the, the ellipse area, she was back there with Rudy Giuliani, and he attempted to get quite handsy with her. I mean, does that surprise anyone? And uh, does anyone doubt that story for one moment? Uh, she was about the most believable, credible witness I've ever seen in my life. And Rudy Giuliani is uh, obviously full of it and completely undependable um, and unfaithful as a witness. Look, if America had believed the women who came forward about Donald Trump's sexual harassment, and if we had followed what we heard with our own ears in the Access Hollywood tape, we never would have gotten into this situation. Usually sexual assault and uh, tolerance for misogyny and sexual harassment uh, go hand in hand with authoritarianism. And it does not surprise me for a moment that on that most sinister of all days, January 6th, Rudy Giuliani decided that that was the moment that he was going to uh, grope uh, Cassidy Hutchinson. I just want to say to Cassidy and to Molly Michael and all the other young women in the uh, Republican Party who serve faithfully and are testifying honestly now about what has taken place. There's a party for you. It's called the Democratic Party. And come on over. Uh, it's a <laughs> big tent. We've got room for you. It's the party of democracy and freedom and equality in America. And that's how we're going to make meaning out of uh, all of these savage experiences that people have had. And respect for the autonomy of women. Uh, this is me staring in E. Jean Carroll. So, uh, Congressman... Jamie Raskin. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. And now this quick programming note. Next Monday night, Rachel Maddow sits down with the aforementioned former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson for her first live interview since serving as a, if not the key witness in the January 6th hearings. And coming up next on The Readout, a blistering new book predicts the fall of Fox and the end of the Murdoch dynasty, dishing shovels of dirt on Rupert Murdoch and his minions, including former golden boy, Tucker Carlson. That's next. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. 
TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. We have some brand new insight on what happened over at Fox in the days and weeks before and after the massive Dominion defamation settlement. This comes from the forthcoming book by famed media gadfly Michael Wolf, entitled The Fall, The End of Fox News and the Murdoch Dynasty. What we learn in the excerpt posted in New York Magazine is that Fox and its 92-year-old Svengali, Rupert Murdoch, always had a tortured relationship with Donald Trump, the man they boosted and empowered. It's no secret that Fox is an extension of the Republican Party. Fox and Murdoch embraced Trump because it was politically expedient. That is, until he became a loser. According to Wolf's reporting, after the 2020 election, Murdoch saw Trump in clear terms. In addition to being an a-hole, plainly nuts, an idiot, a fool who couldn't give a flip, who had no plan, who just wants the money, Trump was an effing crazy man and a loser. Murdoch was furious that Trump kept lying about the election results, and as a direct consequence, his network was being sued by Dominion for repeating those lies. Murdoch created his own little gremlin, and now he was angry that it bit him back. According to Wolf, Murdoch was angry because in his mind, it wasn't Fox's fault, it was Donald Trump's fault. He wasn't going to pay for what Donald Trump did, sue Donald Trump, he figured. Well, that didn't happen. And Fox would wind up coughing up $787 million to Dominion for magnifying Trump's lies. And Murdoch got that number under the billion dollars that Dominion originally wanted with a wink and nod plan of culling the herd. According to Wolf, Murdoch considered firing Sean Hannity, who he couldn't stand, but wound up sacrificing Tucker Carlson, who he actually likes, instead. Not because of his racism, conspiracy mongering, and Putin fandom. No, no. But rather because Murdoch was bothered by reports that Carlson might run for president. NBC was not able to confirm these reports. Joining me now is Angelo Carasoni, president and CEO of Media Matters for America. Good to see you in person, my friend. So let's just get into this because it is fascinating that Rupert Murdoch, who we've learned from multiple books, has always despised Donald Trump, does not have any respect for Donald Trump, yet went along with Donald Trump's rise and, you know, flacking for Donald Trump, only to be angry that Donald Trump caused him to pay out all that money. What did you make of this reporting? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot to be said about this because he wasn't just a passive participant who sort of endured this happening. There was a moment at Fox News, an inflection point, where they had actually gone from challenging Trump's election lies in the initial days of the results to making a flip. Uh, making a business decision and a political decision that they were actually going to carry the water for it. Yeah. Uh, that's why they ultimately got sued. Yep. And there were moments along the way. In fact, on January 5th, the day before the insurrection, Rupert Murdoch, there's there's documentation came out from the Dominion where he says the only entity that could correct these lies for the American public is Fox News. They're the only ones that have the trust relationship. Yeah. And he made an active decision the day before the insurrection not to have not to use Fox News yeah. to actually correct that misinformation. So my point is, is that, you know, he can he wasn't totally a passive participant in this, not just in this moment. Uh, he, he actively enabled it. And then beyond that, and you sort of mentioned it in your monologue, is that he see they seeded this. They incubated this extremism. Amongst the, we didn't get here overnight. Fox News was the lead steer of the Republican Party for decades. And they fur they they fomented 
into this extremism that they're no longer able to control. I mean, there's a reason that we no longer add the news when we talk about them. Mm -hmm. We just call them Fox because it isn't a news organization. It is an extension of the Republican Party. Um, the, the interesting thing is when you talk about, you know, the only people who could really diffuse the lies, it's true because that's what most Republicans watch. Yep. Tucker Carlson at the time, though he's now unemployed, um, was the most powerful voice there. Yeah. And there's some interesting things about here as well. Um, and, and when they fired Tucker Carlson, instead of firing Sean Hannity, Sean Hannity and uh, sort of Tucker is portrayed as being sort of Lachlan Murdoch's guy, not Rupert Murdoch's mm -hmm. guy. This is what they wrote. Uh, Fox's case against Carlson to fire him re uh, retailed through the liberal media in the weeks after he was taken off the air it was a case against itself. Fox might be white, chauvinist, nativist, and conspiratorial in its views, but Carlson, in his six years in prime time, had become more Fox than Fox. What do you make of that? Because he transformed from somebody who worked here at MSNBC to somebody who didn't do so well at CNN— to suddenly that thing that he was on Fox, and then he got fired. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to that. Obviously, I know that these things can always be a little bit suspect, and I, I appreciate that. But there's actually a, really a lot to that because you keep in mind that in the 2022 election was the first time in a quarter century where Rush Limbaugh was not the single largest get out the vote operation in this country. Very true. There was a massive void in the right wing media, and what gives them power is that it's an echo chamber, and in an echo chamber, you need a conductor for that chorus. Yeah. And without Limbaugh and with Fox News sort of in this wobbly position, there was no center of gravity. And was the only person that stepped into that center of gravity. It's why he started to give speeches in Iowa, for yeah. example, um, because he started to experiment with just how much how much influence do I actually have over this massive engine of misinformation yeah. and, and ideas? And, and so if you're the Murdochs and you're in this precarious position, especially after the Dominion settlement, knowing all the headwinds you're heading into, all these changes in consumption, all of this political upheaval, you need to have tight control of the reins. Yeah. And you're, there's no way that you can do that from a financial perspective or a political perspective if you have Tucker Carlson there, who and, is yeah. too big. And his hubris in thinking, well, I can be president too, because th they created the sort of atmosphere Sphere where Donald Trump thought he could be president That's and right. got to be president. This is my the third thing I want to talk to you about: the attempt to replace Trump as the Fox preferred <laughs> candidate. It's like the succession episode yeah. with DeSantis and the disaster that that was because he has no personality. Here's the little bit: uh, he got to go to dinner. Uh, DeSantis did with uh, Tucker Carlson and his uh, quite his wife, who's a sort of stay-at-home bougie mom. Uh, and he spoke with his outdoor voice indoors, failed to observe any basis of conversational ritual or propriety, and may have even, like— kicked their dogs under the table. Mm -hmm. He was uncouth and gross. Yep. And that didn't work out. Your thoughts? Uh, that certainly sounds like <laughs> sounds it would like be him. accurate. I mean, the dog thing stuck, stuck out to me because one of the, there's the, a few publications in Florida that are pro-DeSantis, one of them called Florida Voices. Yeah. It is heavily funded by a massive puppy mill operation. <laughs> Ron DeSantis gave endorsement videos for this outlet. Uh, and then when the news came out that it was funded <laughs> by a puppy mill operation, didn't say anything. Usually, when you're pro-puppy mill, you, you would want to distance yourself from it. Yeah. Um, so I was like, wow, all this salacious, well, but that I could actually see. But <laughs> at its core, it rings true. Puppy um, mills and pudding fingers. <laughs> Not a good way to become president of the United States. <laughs> Angela Carsoni, thank you very much. Thank it's you. great to see you still ahead. The shadowy group behind the Supreme Court challenge to affirmative action sets its sights on diversity efforts in corporate America. The fearless funds Ayanna Parsons and attorney Ben Crump join me next. He Students for Fair Admissions, the student list group behind the Supreme Court ruling killing affirmative action, is now going after military academies. On Tuesday, they sued West Point 
arguing that the court's ruling should extend to the nation's military academies as well. Edward Blum, the non-student behind Students for Fair Admissions, is not stopping there. His next targets are businesses, not just over who they hire, but over how they raise money to, well, do business. Blum, whose singular mission appears to be to kill any public or private effort to extend opportunity to black Americans in areas where access has historically been limited and to recast white Americans as the true victims of discrimination, is now challenging the Fearless Fund, an Atlanta-based group that awards $20,000 grants to black women who run businesses. Blum and his ironically titled other organization, the American Alliance for Equal Rights, allege that the grant for black women is discriminatory. Joining me now is Ayanna Parsons, co-founder of the Fearless Fund, and Ben Crump, civil rights attorney, the civil rights attorney retained by the Fearless Fund to fight the lawsuit, and of course, our friend, friend of the show, uh, and my friend. It's great to see you both. Thank you for coming on. I just want to have you point out, have you explain to us what the Fearless Fund does? Yes. So the Fearless Fund is the first venture capital fund founded by, by women of color, investing solely in women of color-led businesses. So we are an investment vehicle. We invest capital and we take an ownership stake in those companies. There is also a completely separate 501c3 called the Fearless Foundation, and that is where we deploy grants to deserving women. And then I just want to point this out just statistically, um, women owned black, black women owned businesses right now receive just 0.39% of venture capital funding. That is a, for anyone who's not a math person, that's less than 1%. The idea that this person, Edward Blum, who definitely is fixated on things black people are trying to achieve is going after you all for $20,000 grants that are less than that, that apprise less than 0.39% of venture capital fund. Your thoughts on that? Well, Joy, it's it's abysmal. I'm going to break it down even further. So that 0.39% is all women of color, VC funding. So that's so not you, even just black it's, women. It's not even black women. Black women are 0.13%. Oh, and we make up as women of color, that's black, that's Native American, Latina, Asian, more than 20% of the population. So let's talk about equity. Let's talk about fairness. That's what this is about. And that's why he must be stopped in his tracks. And, and I mean, it, it does seem like it's sort of trolling in a way. But as a legal case, how can it be possible that it is discriminatory for this organization, an organization founded by three individual private citizens, can't award grants to black women? How can that be even a case? Joy Reid, this is nothing but a frivolous attempt of the enemies of equality to try to prevent the progress of women, to prevent women, especially women of color, from having a seat at the table. They're on the wrong side of history. And Ayanna Parsons and Arian Simone has done something that is a sea change. They have raised almost $100 million to say, black women and women, you all will have a seat at the table. And he said, oh, I got to protect white men. Yeah. And so is that the basis of his case, that white men should be given some of the $20,000 grants? He said, you can't ever be intentional about trying to increase diversity because that to him is a violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1866 that was created after the Civil War to give black people an opportunity to do business, to enter into contracts. So it's so disingenuous, Joy, that now he's trying to use that same law to stop black people from it, doing it, business. It feels like this is just one component of an attempt to dismantle all of the structural attacks 
attempts to try to, you know, bring African-Americans, bring women of color, bring Latinas, bring Asian-Americans into equity. Is that how you feel about this? That is this? absolutely how I feel. And you see what has happened with corporations and diversity, equity and inclusion funding. We've seen that come to a halt. We've also seen with this lawsuit what I would call the dismantling of the American dream. Mm-hmm. We are supposed to be able to come in this country, be born in this country, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And this is a dismantling of that. If black women can't be entrepreneurs and get the funding that they so deserve Mm -hmm. to grow their businesses, how will they care for their families? How will they create wealth for future generations to come? Do you have any faith, if this kind of a lawsuit goes to the Supreme Court, that the six that apparently don't believe in affirmative action, don't believe in trying to create equity, would ever rule in favor of the Fearless Fund? Or would they just wipe out any kind of attempts to help non-white people? I know this, Joy, and as I have articulated to you in particular, the intellectual justification of discrimination is rampant in America. And the Supreme Court has showed us that they will engage in it. But the great Victor Hugo said, not all the forces of all the power of all the armies in the world can stop an idea whose time has come. The fearless fund, giving women a seat at the table, is an idea whose time has come. We will be watching this case. Ayanna Parsons, thank you. Best of luck in this lawsuit. Our friend Ben Crump, thank you. Please come back and keep us Thank focused. you, Jory. Thank this you. Is going on. We'll be right back. Be sure to check out the readout blog. Jahan Jones speak with, speaks with hip-hop-loving linguist Dr. Nikki Lane about her class, Hot Girl Meg, a course at Duke University that uses rapper Megan Thee Stallion as a launch point for discussions on hip-hop, gender, race, and sexuality. Listen to her and Jahan tomorrow in a conversation that we are calling Hip-Hop and the Politics of Profanity. And that is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.